Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent with the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today, she leaves the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at Hong Kong University, where she's been a visiting fellow. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. And the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. Today we bring you our third emergency episode from Hong Kong. One day after the 22nd anniversary of the territory's handover from Britain to mainland China, Hong Kong is cleaning up after the legislature was stormed and vandalized by hundreds of protesters. This was after a march. Organizers say half a million people attended, opposing a proposed extradition bill, which people fear will undermine Hong Kong's autonomy. We'll hear from protesters at the scene, activists Johnson Yeung and Kong Tsung Gan, legislator Eddie Chu Hoi Dick, and former Chief Secretary of Hong Kong Anson Chan. Hong Kong's Chief Executive Carrie Lam held a pre-dawn press conference condemning extreme violence and vandalism, and she ignored calls to scrap the legislation. For the first time, Chinese media gave Hong Kong extensive coverage, and the Chinese government described events in Hong Kong as totally intolerable. Let me come back to this very important principle of the rule of law. So, demand the government to release without any investigation. And checking with the、uh, law about whether offences have been made, that we should release everybody、uh, arrested. We should not take any follow-up action against some of the violent acts we have seen, or even to grant an amnesty to all those involved in these protests. All these responses will not be in accordance with the rule of law. Louisa, you were at the legislature when it was stormed. Could you describe the scene? Graham, it was quite an extraordinary scene. These protesters had pulled these metal poles from a fence running along the side of the legislature, and they kind of bound them all together. And they were using them to ram through the reinforced glass. And at the same time, they were also banging the fence with them. So there was this kind of warlike atmosphere.、Um, there were a lot of other protesters there, and for several hours. Everyone just kind of sat there and watched this sort of mixture of tedium and tension,、uh, amid all these rumours that the police were waiting for them to breach the barricades, and the, pe- the there were these rumours that police would come running out. Then there were other rumours saying police were approaching from different directions,、um, and finally, when the protesters did break in, they found that the police had gone; they'd completely vanished from the scene. Um, I went in after them, and you'll hear a little bit of tape of me、um, describing what the scene looked like. Oh, the damage inside the chamber! The damage inside the building is worse than I imagined. There's graffiti all over the walls, saying things like "murderous government."、Uh, there are people hang- hanging banners from the balconies. There's like paper everywhere, graffiti calling for the law to be withdrawn. It's a massive mess. On this side, it says Hong Kong government fucking disgrace. There are barricades being raised inside. 
So, I mean, this seems a real change from the, the really peaceful protests that we'd seen before this. This is quite radical action. Um, what kind of people were in there? I mean, they were the same protesters. And I, over the last day, I've heard a lot of people asking whether these were paid people, provocateurs, you know, who'd come in to whip up the mood. And they really weren't. They were exactly the same people who'd been on the march. They were also some of the people who have been surrounding the police headquarters over the last few days. And outside, there were a lot of the younger crowd who'd been on the marches. And I went to talk to a lot of the people outside, and I was surprised to find um, that they were actually very moderate people. They were sort of students, social workers, physiotherapists, And many of them said that although they didn't necessarily support this radical action of storming the legislature, they understood it and they wanted to stay there and they wanted to lend their support. Um, I asked a few of them why they'd come that night. I think it is the only way that let the China government or also the chief executive know this, how is this uh, the the importance and also the acceptance of China government. The government didn't respond our need, so I think this is the only way. I can't think have any any different way to make the government respond our our need. Do you not worry it will turn public support away from you? Hard to say, uh, but because we don't care, we're loving to lose. Yes. So you really hear that kind of sense of desperation and urgency that a lot of the young protesters felt. Um, This afternoon, to try and get a sense of what this means for the movement, I went to talk to Johnson Young. He's the head of Hong Kong Civil Hub. He didn't take part in the action storming the legislature yesterday, but he said that he understood the forces behind it and that they really resonated with him. For him, he really saw this moment as a turning point for the movement. It is a turning point of the movement in two sense. One, uh, the moderate uh, the moderate or ordinary participants from the movement, it is a huge shock uh, to them. Hong Kong is a society where when people express their public opinions, going to the streets or conventionals, uh, protests will be the options. And uh, storming into the legislature or using uh, forcible entry tactics is not something that you will see day to day. Uh, and secondly, uh, it is a turning point of the movement because now, uh, after the protester occupy the main chamber of the legislature, they make a manifesto. And in that manifesto, they maintain uh, one of the demand is universal suffrages. So uh, like the umbrella movement, the anti-extradition law campaign in the past few months is just a protest moment. But now there is actually a larger framework connected to this protest movement, which is democracies and freedoms and true full autonomies of Hong Kong. So, I mean, we interviewed uh, last week uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen and also Alvin Young, the pro-democracy legislator, and both of them said things need to change, things cannot stay the same. And both of them talked about the need for democracy, but you're saying that moment really clarified it. Mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, clarified universal suffrage as being a demand for the whole movement. Right. Yeah, so if you look back to the whole uh, NTA's traditional um, protests, the first part was on the um, June 9th to 12th, where people were targeting the legislature because the bill was going to be debate on the floor. And after the police used tear gas and, and uh, open fire at the protesters, the main target became the, uh, uh, the, the police. But then after the uh, protester stormed into the legislature, they didn't were trying to uh, uh, create chaos. They didn't try to uh, 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 um, uh, damage the properties in the legislature. It was a very clear symbol, and they know it that the protester knows it that they will have to use this symbol to manifest how injustice the system is, and why democracy and universal suffrages is the way forward in order to protect rights of Hong Kong and also freedom of Hong Kong people in the future. But I think a lot of people will look at that and say how, you know, you can't say they didn't create damage, they knocked down walls, they defaced Mm -hmm. the chamber. This doesn't look like uh, an act of respect for institutions and for democracy. Well, it is a targeted destruction. I think we have to put into context with a lot of things that deface some pictures of the chairpersons of the legislature. And the reason behind is because the chairperson was the one who is trying to push the extradition laws debate. Uh, they also write uh, uh, graffitis saying that it was because of the tyranny that caused people to go to the street and storm into the legislature. So you can see they are not minus animals who are trying to pull out destructions. They were targeting and they have a very clear messaging on uh, uh, on how they combat the injustice they encountered in the past 30 years. And let me remind you, our audience that uh, after the handover in the past 22 years, the legislature was not fairly elected. Half of the seats are controlled, the election method was controlled by Beijing, and there's so many laws, injustice law, uh, inhumane law, passed by this legislature. And this is exactly why the protesters were storming into the parliament's building. But what now? I mean, you have characterized this movement not as a leaderless movement, but as a leaderful movement run by a lot of different leaders with different agendas. How then to move forward? Well, I won't say the leaders... Well, it is a leaderful movement because the leader, uh, the movement is full of uh, different leaders who is running their own tactics in different centres. But I won't say they have different agenda because their agenda is stayed the same, which is to withdraw the extradition law. And also now, because of yesterday uh, escalations, the agenda has expanded to the larger uh, uh, context of democracy and also autonomy of Hong Kong. Now, it is a needleful movement because uh, people use their creativities and also utilize their expertise, such as how to do international advocacy, how to report to the UN, how to use innovative uh, uh, propaganda tactics in convincing uh, the people who are poor government. And I think this energy will stay and remains and uh, contribute to uh, the future movement. Uh, I think the differences between uh, the uh, the campaign right now and the umbrella movement is uh, the momentum is still here, and the moderate and also the more radical side of the protester, they are actually have more dialogue and they have more mutual understanding with each other. 
So uh, after yesterday campaign, I don't see there is a huge possibility that the 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 movement will be uh, split or be fragmented. I think like they are uh, growing stronger. We've seen these comments from the liaison office in Hong Kong saying, uh, you know, talking about the need for more education and things like that. We've seen remarks by the Chinese foreign minister talking about Western foreign forces and infiltration. These are all the kinds of language that was used after Tiananmen, actually. And after that, we saw this campaign of massive propaganda. Is that what you expect to see? Or what kind of actual actions do you think the government might take now? After the 2003 and... um I mean, even after the umbrella movement, most of the tactics from the Chinese government in in weakening the civil society in Hong Kong is uh, full educations or soft tactics like uh, colluding uh, business leaders and and also the politicians in order to facilitate the goals. With or without yesterday escalations, I think that whole anti-extradition law campaign shows that the tactics in infiltrating in the uh, liberal societies of Hong Kong in the past were quite uh, useless. So uh, with or without yesterday escalation, the Chinese government were, are going to amend and refine their tactics on controlling Hong Kong civil society. And I do expect that in the future it will be a more hard-liar approaches. It will not be like soft tactics like uh, infiltrations or collusion there will be more hard law on limiting civil liberties on uh, the citizens or even the Chinese government might trying to cut ties between uh, a foreign human rights communities and, and Hong Kong civil society. So maybe foreign NGO law, charity law, uh, I think that, that would be possible. So you think that they will see this as a kind of attempt for a co- of a colour revolution? I think... I think it's hard to determine how they how they describe this movement, but color revolutions or foreign intervention is always an element in the narrative of the Chinese government. And because in this uh, campaign, Hong Kong people are consciously in showing that they are upholding universal suffrage. So for example, when Joshua was released, he was saying fundamental human rights and freedom and how Hong Kong people embrace these values, which the Chinese government is actually trying to uh, reshape the, the narrative of uh, uh, international human rights. So uh, you see there is a clash between Hong Kong people embracing universal values and Chinese government are trying to change the uh, landscapes internationally. So um, the Chinese government is going to uh, use maybe more foreign uh, interventions, elements, or, or narrative as and justifications to crack down and gain control on Hong Kong. Finally, I'm surprised at how positive you sound. I mean, we've just seen an act of violence that has not been seen in Hong Kong really since 1967, that kind of public vandalism on such a major scale. And yet you're talking about a turning point, you're talking about all these positive things that might come out of it. Why are you so positive? Well, so first of all, 
Hong Kong people are quite rationals and they are reasonable. Like even they pull out militant tactics yesterday, it, it wasn't aimed at creating chaos. It was very targeted. So you, you see there are lots of self-restraint even amongst Hong Kong people. They know where the line is. And they, they when they achieve, uh, they use minimum, they use minimum uh, uh, force to achieve uh, their goal. And secondly, uh, the leaderful movement in Hong Kong is the main reason why the uh, Hong Kong government could not respond and, and, and uh, uh, in paralyze uh, uh, in, in the in, in the past two weeks because there were so many center of movement and the Hong Kong government was not elastic enough uh, to respond to all this front after the umbrella movement. Uh, there were like only a handful center of movement like uh, the, the, the pandemic or people who uphold uh, uh, Hong Kong independence or self-determination movement so it was pretty easy for the Hong Kong government to crack down and target a few leaders now if the leaders the small leader or emergent leaders that's, that emerged from this movement continue to contribute in the movement it's really hard for the Hong Kong government to crack down all of them so that's why I'm hopeful. So, Louisa, what's the mood like today? Well, it's like the entire place has been paralysed by the events of yesterday. Um, all the civil servants have been told to stay at home. The legislature has been closed. And I went past the legislature this morning. It was very calm. There were police cleaning up. Um, but it was interesting because... As it has been closed, politics has really moved entirely onto the street. So the street outside was full of politicians giving statements. And because, of course, the LegCo press room was closed, um, they've made this, ki- this kind of impromptu press room outside the legislature uh, with a rostrum for the mics, which was made of sort of taped up ladders. And there were all these politicians sort of milling around on the pavement round there. Um, While I was walking past, I bumped into a pan-democratic legislator whose name is Eddie Chu Hoi Dick. He's known as the king of the votes because he secured more votes than any other candidate in the last legislative elections. Um, I asked him what he thought is next for Hong Kong politics. Well, I think we we need to... um, The escalation will not stop uh, if the government... uh, keeps to be evasive and from the government side uh, they are trying to uh, transform Hong Kong uh, to a policy and uh, carry them uh, was accompanied uh, many times by uh, the commissioner of police and the chief of uh, security bureau so she is trying to uh, appeal to the general public that here we don't have a political issue anymore. Uh, we only have a social security issue. So they're trying to persuade the general public that we need more crackdown on young people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when the, on the other hand, it is, um, uh, 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 I mean the general public is now uh, in confusion, actually. Most of uh, the citizens, I, I think, do not agree with uh, yesterday's uh, break into the council. But uh, I think the uh, solidarity among 
the uh, democracy camp is, is still strong. So uh, we will make a comeback. Uh, we don't have uh, fundamental differences between uh, our political goal this time, uh, between uh, radical activists and uh, non-violent advocates. So uh, we have a midterm goal uh, of the November district council election, and in between, we, we, we foresee uh, actions, uh, furthermore actions coming. Uh, but I, but I believe that uh, after last night, uh, even radical activists will uh, employ a mild approach uh, to the actions. So one last question, one quick question. I mean, do you think that Regina, I mean, so do you think that Carrie Lam is using a sort of stability maintenance argument of the kind that we're seeing on the mainland by constantly being seen only with the police? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And uh, we remember that after the uh, Tiananmen massacre uh, in in 1989, uh, the first meeting uh, Tang Xiaoping had was with army generals. So it's just a, a, a miniature of uh, what Beijing did uh, 30 years ago. And it deeply worries me since uh, uh, if it is an order from uh, Beijing side, then the escalation will not stop. and. Uh, sooner or later, uh, Beijing will put on the table the deployment uh, of People's Liberation Army. Because the playbook has always been the Tiananmen playbook. I mean, we saw the designation of a riot, the accusation of foreign hostile forces, the foreign minister talking about black hands. I mean, what we saw in the post-Tiananmen response was patriotic education, a massive ideological campaign. And we already saw that after Occupy Central, after 2014, and the Umbrella Movement. So is that what you're now expecting? But uh, Hong Kong situation is uh, a little bit different. Uh, uh, although we are at the periphery of this Chinese empire, just like Xinjiang and Tibet, but uh, at the same time, we are an international city, and uh, different countries uh, have uh, very important stakes in this city. So that is also the reason why uh, Carrie Lam's government agreed to uh, make uh, a concession this time. Uh, it's uh, a, a little bit different from what Beijing did uh, 30 years ago. So. Uh, it is a uh, 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 complicated uh, chessboard, and uh, I think we, we, we are not uh, destined to follow uh, uh, the track of mainland. Uh, and I think with uh, the attention of the international world and the resilience of uh, Hong Kong citizens, we can uh, make our uh, own way out of this. Now, Louisa, on your on your very last day in Hong Kong, you also managed to find time to speak to the woman who used to be the head of Hong Kong's civil service. Could you tell me more about where she put the blame? Yes, I spoke to Anson Chan. She's the former public servant who was the chief secretary of the civil service under both British and Chinese rule. 
she's been very vocal about the extradition law and she's actually been on this 10-day visit to the US where she was talking a lot about the law and the kind of dangers that it poses. And I started by asking her how she felt watching yesterday's events unfold. I don't condone violence. I think uh, uh, in the end, uh, it's, it's actually counterproductive. But on the other hand, the young people feel they've tried everything else and everything has fallen on deaf ears. So they feel they need to escalate the action. And the way to escalate the action is to resort to to, to violence. Um, I don't think that really helps matters. And sometimes it can be totally counterproductive because it will turn the public against you. Although it was interesting that yesterday, one of the um, uh, um, pro-Beijing media uh, conducted a, a survey I think probably hoping that the majority of Hong Kong people would um, condemn violence. In fact, 80% of those asked uh, accepted the, the need for violence. <laughs> Which paper was that? Uh, the, I think it's called King uh, Yabo, uh, the, uh, the Hong Kong Economic Times. Yes. <laughs> so that's interesting. So the government, you know, the government should uh, look into what is bothering our younger generation. Why um, do our younger generation feel that this government simply ignores them, uh, do not uh, reflect their views, much less meet them, uh, and uh, they face a very dismal future? It seems that the response of the chief executive, Carrie Lam, has also sparked a lot of concern. The fact that she hasn't been seen since June the 18th, apart from with police, uh, you know, congratulating policemen when people felt that the police were very brutal. She gave a press conference at four this morning. In the morning, yes. Why is it that two million people's uh, appeals have totally fallen on deaf ears? Uh, In fact, I think uh, the fact that two million people turned up onto the streets was entirely due to the disastrous press conference that he gave in which not only was she unrepentant, uh, but she termed the whole incident on the 12th of June as a riot. That really uh, angered people, and so you had more people uh, determined to take to the streets. And I took part in the in the march on the uh, I think it was 16th of June, and a lot of uh, those who participated were first timers. They've never participated in the march, but they just feel they need to stand up and um, uh, and have the courage of their convictions um, because they don't know when they will have another opportunity to articulate their views. And yet we're in a kind of state of paralysis. None of the government officials are working. LegCo is suspended. It seems to me that some of the demands are, are really very reasonable. And if you were a caring, responsive government, you would accede to these requests. For example, the insistence that you withdraw the extradition bill. Now, the government says, oh, we're arguing about semantics. Uh, In effect, we're telling you that the bill is all but dead. Um, And so there's no difference between suspension and withdrawal. Uh, Not so. In the eyes of the Hong Kong people, there is a big difference. And given the degree of distrust in this government, nobody will take Carrie Lam at her word. Now, suspension simply means that for the time being, the government says it will not pursue it. But it doesn't rule out the possibility that if and when the government changes its mind, it can still resume the second reading of the bill. So in the eyes of the Hong Kong people, nothing short of withdrawal will satisfy them. So why is it so obstinately against it? I just don't understand.
Do you think the past month has been a game changer in the relationship between the executive, the legislature and the people? I think it's brought to the uh, service mm. the uh, growing sense of injustice. Uh, our system is unjust. Mm. We don't have the right to vote for our own leaders, whether it is the chief executive or all members of our legislature. We have a legislature where the probation parties are in the majority and they can write roughshod uh, over views expressed by the pan-democratic camp. Even though uh, in elections after election, the pan-democrats usually manage to garner between 55% to 60% of the popular vote. So how come an unelected chief executive feels that she can totally ignore these voices? Carrie Lam, in the two years that she assumed office, she's made it quite clear, you are either for me or against me, you are either my friend or my enemy, and never the twain shall meet. This is not the way to govern Hong Kong. So it's not about the extradition law anymore? Uh, it is still, for as long as it is not withdrawn. We do not want, at some future date, to face another prospect that the extradition bill might be revived uh, and everybody will feel unsafe, even in their own beds, because every one of us could be subject to an extradition request from mainland China. And once we find ourselves across the border, uh, we can't have a, a fair open trial. We can't even have legal representation. There may be trumped-up charges and forced confessions. Hence, this fundamental distrust of the legal and criminal system in mainland China. This firewall that has existed between Hong Kong and mainland China all these 22 years after the handover, that needs to remain in place until and unless mainland China meets international human rights standards. Um, I just wanted to ask you about Hong Kong core values. There seems to have been this idea that is repeated time and again in particularly in British sort of colonial histories that Hong Kong people are not political that they're only interested in money and making I think think this participation by so many people who are prepared to have the courage of their convictions I think that that really gives the lie to to the assertion that Hong Kong people are, are not interested in politics if you compare Hong Kong people with their counterparts in mainland China there I think you would say the average mainland Chinese is interested in making money, improving their standard of living, uh, uh, and really don't care much about democracy uh, or uh, liberal values. But then you can't blame them because they've never had it, so they don't miss it. But in Hong Kong, we've had it throughout 156 years of British rule, and these are things that we value. We value being a pluralistic society, we value our toleration for different points of view, but above all, we value our individual civil liberties. So those um, Hong Kong core values, I mean, we've seen that people are willing to take to the streets to protect those. And yet, it seems on the other side, uh, the government is not (laughs) working. The government isn't listening. Uh, The trouble is, our current chief executive listens more to her own uh, counsel than to views around her, nor does she particularly encourage people around her to uh, speak truth unto power. Well, in my view, every leader needs to have a degree of humility. You need to listen more than you speak yourself, because it is through that process that you can hopefully, by taking everybody's views into account, hopefully arrive at policies that that do meet uh, community expectations. But if you listen only to your own voice, mm, you run the risk 
of making you know serious mistakes along the way. So those core values you think are under threat now? Uh, yes, we have seen it being under threat for several years now. Uh, and our fear is that if it is not checked, and if it is allowed to continue, then at the moment we possibly have one country, one and a half systems. But if the deterioration continues, then one of these days, way before 2047, we will find ourselves having one country, one system. Now, this isn't what we have been promised. So all we're asking Beijing is to deliver on its promises. Nothing more, nothing less. That was Anson Chan, the former chief secretary. And finally, Graham, I did speak to one other person today. It's been a really busy day. But for some more analysis of the dynamics of the protest and also how we even got to this place, um, I spoke to the activist and writer Kong Sun Gam. He's the author of Umbrella, a political tale from Hong Kong. And he has this amazing Twitter feed where he's collecting statistics about uh, political trials and things like that. Um, I began by asking him about why protesters don't trust Carrie Lam, even though she pledged to listen to them. Um, Because she hasn't met any protesters. You know, 3.8 million protesters have been out on the streets since uh, June 9. And, you know, before that, there were a couple of uh, anti-extradition protests in April and May as well. And all along, even to the point of calling for her resignation, people have been asking her to meet with people who have a very different opinion of the extradition bill and the current crisis we find ourselves in. And she hasn't, you know, as recently as yesterday, these pro-democracy legislative council members who are really quite moderate people asked to meet with her in order to head off what they saw as an impending crisis. uh, And she refused to do it again. So, uh, yesterday, when she was giving that flag raising ceremony speech, there were thousands of young protesters outside uh, wanting to meet her. And there she was saying that she was interested in talking with young people. Well, if she was interested, all she had to do was walk outside. So uh, what now? I mean, I noticed that in the speech that the protesters gave when they went into the Ledgeco building, they added a new demand, which was for the functional constituencies, which are these kind of pro-business seats in the legislature, to be abolished. Is that, I mean, is it wise to add new demands at this point? Do you think all the protesters support that? Well, first of all, you know, we could ask uh, who made that demand exactly. You know, that was quite um, a chaotic situation. And the people who went into the Legislative Council didn't have, you know, uh, recognized representatives or uh, spokespeople or anything uh, like that. Um, and I think one reason that the people who, who made that demand made it is because of where they were. They were in the Legislative Council. And in fact, that's that's a long-standing demand of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong because you can't have universal suffrage if half of the legislative council is 
effectively rigged as it is now through these functional constituencies. So I think they probably made that demand because of where they were standing, which was in this rigged pseudo parliament. I mean, if you look at those demands, what they boil down to is is talk with us, meet with people besides those who are loyal to the communist uh, party. Uh, And, you know, the government hasn't even been able to bring itself to uh, do that. So I don't think the the abolition of functional constituencies is a new demand. It's one that's been around uh, Hong Kong for, for years and years and would be necessary to abide by the basic law where it says the Legislative Council is to be elected by universal suffrage. But where, where does the protest movement go from here? That's uh, anybody's guess. I think it's been that way all along. Nobody's uh, known that for sure. I think what's clear from Kerry Lam's press conference is that the government is uh, starting to engage in a propaganda uh, war where it wants to shift the media focus from uh, its own behavior and the behavior of the police to the behavior of protesters. So uh, one thing uh, depends on, you know, how how successful it is in, in driving that uh, narrative. And then the other thing that I think can be said for sure, regardless of where things go from here, is because the government refuses to even recognize that the issues protesters are raising are real issues, the perpetual governance crisis that we find ourselves in in Hong Kong and have for many years is bound to continue. And because of that, whatever happens with these protests, you're going to see you know, more struggle occur in the future. So, I mean, up till now, one of the mottos has been be be like washer, you know, be flexible, be agile, change tack. It was last night the start of a much more radical, much more violent, much more hardcore set of tactics? Is that something you think we'll see again? Or do you think it was an aberration? Well, uh, one thing to remember is that uh, the movement, the campaign against the extradition bill has kind of been made up of two parts. And one is these mass rallies where, you know, 1.03 million, 2 million, 550,000 people have turned out and they represent a wide swath of Hong Kong society. They're very peaceful. They're, you know, in this very long tradition of mass uh, rallies we've had in Hong Kong. And then you've had, you know, uh, groups of younger protesters engaging in, in more confrontational tactics. And to the extent that the campaign has been effective, it's had to do with the combination of these two things. Now, what you saw yesterday, in some ways, you could say had been building up because Prior to yesterday, uh, the young protesters had uh, besieged uh, police headquarters on two occasions. And one of the things the government's trying to do now is drive a wedge in between these young protesters and the people who've been coming to the mass rallies. Because up to now, um, these two sides have been, you know, more or less unified, more or less in agreement. And my feeling is that a lot of the people who come to the mass rallies are a bit like the pro-democracy LegCo members, which is to say that um, they may sometimes disagree with the tactics and actions of the young protesters, 
but at the same time, they sympathize with them uh, and believe that the blame for the crisis here uh, lies with the government. Uh, and we'll have to see if that continues to be the case. I mean, Ming Bao has been doing surveys that show that over 70% of people agree with these basic uh, demands. And so can the government uh, cleave us apart? Uh, let's find out. So what is the mood on the Telegram messaging apps and on the websites? What is the mood like today? What I find most striking is I'm on lots of WhatsApp groups with people who are, you know, very sort of middle of the road and middle aged. And their immediate response that I've been seeing this morning is quite similar to what I just said, which is they support the young protesters. They think what the government is trying to do is is uh, despicable, and they still very much blame the government for the the current crisis. So I think that's quite striking because those are the sorts of people that the the government wants to to influence. I mean, another thing that these few weeks has really laid bare is the fact that one country, two systems isn't working for anybody, but. Given that, you know, it seems unsustainable, but what what other options are there? So, uh, you know, the uh, governments and the rest of the world keep intoning one country, two systems. And, uh, you know, they're in a bit of a time warp because one country, two systems here has been broken for a long time, at least since 2014. And you could argue uh, prior to that. Um, and, you know, in this sense, both the Communist Party and Hong Kong people are in agreement because uh, we know that it's our dirty little secret. And what the struggle is about now is what's going to replace one country, two systems. And the Communist Party wants to replace it with, you know, much greater control over Hong Kong and the eventual eventual assimilation of Hong Kong into the rest of the territory that it controls. And uh, Hong Kong people want self-determination. They want to determine their own political status. And that's really the issue here. And, you know, how that manifests itself, we've seen in the last five years where some people are self-determinationists and they say, you know, we want to determine our own political status. And other people are advocating uh, independence. And it's really quite interesting. If you if you go back to, you won't find that many people out on the streets in uh, advocating independence. And strikingly, in these protests, even pro-independence people haven't been using that language. Instead, they've been talking about uh, opposing Chinese uh, colonialism and that sort of thing. Going back to those middle-of-the-road, middle-aged WhatsApp groups and, and that profile of Hong Kong person that in many people's hearts, there is this feeling that independence can be the only way. And for many people, it's not because they fervently want that, but it's because they just don't see any way out. You know, the Communist Party has said that it's August 31, 2014 decision that basically um, did away with universal suffrage stands forever. So that's one avenue that's blocked off uh, to us. What other recourse do we have? So finally, I mean, 
what do you see for the next, I mean, I, I won't ask you long term, but even short term, are we now facing a future in Hong Kong where there'll be these sort of permanent <laughs> sort of rolling blockades and occupations and, and police actions? Are we going to see this escalating tension just continue? It's it's very, very hard to say. You know, um, one thing I always say about Hong Kong people is we're very good at standing up and saying no when our back is against the wall, as we did in 2003 with the Article 23 national security legislation, 2012 with the, the national education curriculum, 2014 with fake suffrage, and now with the extradition bill. We're not as good at saying these are our positive objectives and struggling towards them. Um, and so, you know, what you saw after the umbrella movement was, on the one hand, a lot of depression and alienation and uh, moving away from political part participation. And on the other, lots of new ideas and new groups and new initiatives and so on, many of which were slapped down by the Hong Kong government and the Communist Party behind it. And so, so many people have been excluded effectively from the formal political system. And these are the people you see um, demonstrating now. And so, you know, there's this kind of feeling of revolution in the air. There really is. But you just don't know what will uh, happen to with that. It, it, it will remain because none of the issues are being addressed. But, you know, it could go in a period of dormancy or you might see more things like you saw uh, last night. It's just very hard to say at the moment. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, human rights advocate Johnson Young, LegCo member Eddie Chu, former Chief Secretary Anson Chan, and writer Kong Tsung Gan. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave us a nice review wherever you listen to the show. Our editors were Andy Hazel and Anita Michalski. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.